My name is uh, Justin Leach, and I'm one of the pastors here at Center Church. Uh, Josh introduced himself uh, earlier. Um, what we get to do this morning uh, is, is such a joy. We got to sing just a second ago, All Glory Be to Christ. And what we hope to do this morning as we walk through the book of Acts and continue looking at God's Word in this Advent season as we're just uh, passage by passage looking through this book that Luke wrote for us, is to look to Christ and to see his glory, to be filled with that and to find joy. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are really glad that you are here uh, visiting and worshiping with us. We'd love to get to know you better, and we want to point you uh, to this God who sent his son to die for us, where we believe uh, there is fullness of joy and eternal life available that we have found. So, uh, one of the most common accusations that are th is thrown at Christians today, this is where we're going to jump right in, one of the most common accusations that is thrown at Christians today is the idea of hypocrisy, right? One, that is the most, one of the, the most common things that you'll see thrown at Christians. If you are somebody who is not a follower of Jesus that is here with us today, you may look at Christians and think that they are hypocritical, confessing to believe certain things uh, out of one side of their life, but then living in a way that doesn't line up with that. Now, uh, for certain, I'm not throwing unnecessary, unnecessary shade at the church. Um, there are times that uh, Christians have been labeled hypocrites that are unfair and, and not true. For example, someone who claims to be a Christian, that is preaching a gospel that is not true, that is racking up private jets and mansions and claiming to be a Christian, we say that's not hypocritical, that person's not a real Christian. But there are times when we as true followers of Jesus confess incredible, incredible doctrines of grace, but then fail to live it out in our lives. And we have to be honest that there are areas this side of heaven that when we are imperfect that we are going to be hypocritical and we can move forward. And as we walk through the book of Acts, the author, Luke, stops at a couple points and gives a snapshot of what the church is like that has just seen Jesus resurrect from the dead as the Christian movement begins to explode around the world. We get a couple snapshots. If you remember in Acts 2, 42 to 47, this happened right after the Spirit poured out and thousands of people believed. And then again, uh, after the church prays in Acts uh, 4, which we heard last week, Luke stops and gives us another snapshot of the church. And if we read this passage that we just heard uh, read before us, and we're going to work through it today, if we are honest, there are areas where even the most mature and faithful Christians among us fall short, and where people outside the church can probably honestly say you're not living up to what you believe. That is because grace is an explosive doctrine, right? Grace is a powerful and explosive doctrine. Grace might just be the most fundamental or one of the most fundamental beliefs of the church. And this doctrine of grace should change everything that we do. But grace, like I mentioned, is not something that we always embody or live out faithfully. And because of that, sometimes we can slide into hypocrisy. And grace has explosive power. We've seen that through Acts. Grace is so explosive, actually, that I regularly talk to people who aren't Christians and discuss the gospel. And their response to hearing the idea of grace in the message of the gospel, this free gift, the response goes something like this. Wait, 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 Justin. You're telling me that no matter what someone has done, they could have murdered children. They could have kidnapped people and uh, never given them back to their families. They could have uh, destroyed nations by their selfishness and hoarding money and stealing from others and oppressing the poor. And you're telling me that all they have to do is believe in Jesus and they get saved. I say, yes, 
That, that's all they have to do. That is the message of grace, right? This is explosive. This is scandalous. This is a little bit ridiculous if we look at it with fresh eyes, right? All of us who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God can be saved just by grace, a free gift from God to us. This is an explosive doctrine. Throughout the history of the church, the Christian movement, people have erred uh, and walked away from sound doctrine because they could not handle the idea that grace can be so free. There has to be something more that we do. But grace is free. This is scandalous and explosive. But as explosive as this message of grace is, and as powerfully as it should change our lives, oftentimes we look at the church around us today and we see a power that looks more like a fourth grade science project than it does like Mount St. Helens or Pompeii. Right? Grace is an explosive doctrine, but we look around at the church today and we see a weak uh, seltzer water power rather than the explosive reality that the gospel of grace should bring into our lives. Throughout the book of Acts, we have gotten to see this church that encountered incredible grace and they were changed radically and their numbers exploded as they demonstrated that grace. Right? The, Acts, the church in Acts exploded with great power because they faithfully made grace visible. Right? The way that they lived embodied the reality of the doctrine of grace that they preached. The way that they lived gave authority and truth and raised the question of, is this message really real? Because these people believe it by the way that they live. The message of grace is powerful, but oftentimes we don't live that out. The church in Acts exploded with this great power because they made grace visible. They demonstrated grace. And today, if we are going to be a faithful church, if we are going to see the gospel explode in our dorm rooms, on our university campus, in our workplace, our neighborhood, at Jackson Via Elementary School, and we are going to see the love of Jesus spread into new pockets of our community here and all over the world, a massive part of that is going to be us starting to live with integrity, in response to the doctrine of grace rather than walking in hypocrisy and not allowing this doctrine of grace to change us. So what we see in this passage today, what we're going to see is how this doctrine of grace is made visible by the church. First, we'll take a look at this invisible idea of grace and how the church encountered grace, and then we will see what impact that encounter with grace had on the church. Right? And we're going to see two main things. I'll give you the answer before we even get to the end. We're going to see two main things. We're going to see that they overflowed in unity and they made grace visible in generosity. Unity and generosity. In doing this, we're going to see how we can align ourselves more and more faithfully to this doctrine of grace that we proclaim. I'm going to read the passage again. And with that framework, I want you to hear how incredible the description is of this early church community. Listen to the ways that unity and generosity flowing from grace pop in this church. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and Levite, native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Unity, generosity, exploding from grace is in this church. All right. 
we've got this idea of invisible grace that we will look at first. What is this invisible grace? We see this church encountering the grace of God in a number of powerful ways right here. Um, The passage, first of all, we see is describing the full number of those who believed, right? It's describing the the full number of those who believe were of one mind and soul. So who is this describing? Well, um, this group of people is the people that had believed the message that Peter and John and the apostles had been preaching throughout the first couple passages and chapters in the book of Acts. The full number of those who believed, what exactly did they believe? And that is this message of the gospel that had been preached. How do I know that? Well, since Acts 2.10 or so, as we've been walking through the books of Acts, we have seen that Peter and John and the apostles have been doing really one of three things in the entire book. Either they have been preparing to preach this gospel, they have been preaching the gospel, or they have been getting in trouble for preaching the gospel. Right, the center point of this movement was the message of the gospel that was preached. The, what they believed, what they centered around was this message of the gospel. Also in verse 33, right here in this passage, we see the central teaching point of the community that the apostles put forward with great power, and that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The apostles were giving testimony to this message of the gospel. And before anything else, the message of the gospel is a message of grace. What is this gospel of grace that was being preached? What does that mean? Well, grace is undeserved or unearned favor, right? Grace is a free gift. In Romans 10, one of the apostles would say it like this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. The only requirement to be saved is to call on the name of the Lord. There is no gifts that we bring. There is no effort that we put in. This is grace. Right? This is the center and foundational idea that they came into contact with and were changed by. The idea that we come to Jesus with nothing and he gives us free grace, welcoming relationship. The people here in this crowd that this uh, Acts 4 is describing received a uh, uniquely potent dose of grace because they had a uniquely wicked sin. All right, these people uh, had uniquely potent grace that they were experiencing because they committed a uniquely potent sin. You might say, what is that? They killed Jesus. Right? This group of people here in Acts 4, they were there when Jesus was put on the cross and they threw their vote in the ring against him. Right? Maybe the most evil act ever committed in human history, killing God himself who had come to save the world, was committed by these very people. They committed a wicked sin by fearing man rather than God and killing an innocent man rather than doing what was right. In Acts 2, uh, 36 in his sermon, uh, Peter makes this very clear. He says, let all the house of Israel, talking to people here, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Right? These people killed Jesus. And then again in Acts 3, he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. These people threw in their vote to kill Jesus. And if there was any time that I was going to have to stand before God and answer for him, that is one thing I would not have, want to be guilty of. Right? They were in some trouble. The apostles did not shy away from pointing out this fact, though, because the apostles were aware of the doctrine of grace, right? Wicked sin 
terrible sin is not the end of the story and does not have to be bad news because the grace of the gospel provides a free gift of salvation for anyone who would believe, even those who killed Jesus, even those who had sex before they were married, even those who can't stop going out and drinking even though they know it's wrong. The gospel of grace says there's free gift of relationship with God and forgiveness for anyone who would turn to him. Before the church could make grace visible to the world, Jesus made grace visible to the church. Right Before the church could go and make grace visible to the world through this unity and generosity, Jesus made grace visible to the church. The full number of people who believed had cast their vote just a few days before for Jesus' death, and then Jesus turned around and sent his preachers to go to them and say, but the message of the gospel is this Jesus will accept you if you just turn to him. He is a gift of free grace for you. This great grace is available to you no matter who you are, where you have been, or what you have done. This is the the core message of Christianity, that there is nothing that separates us except our rebellion and sin against God. We turn to him in trust, and free grace is available to us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When you hear those lyrics, when you sing that song, Does your heart lift with worship and joy? Because if it does, if your eyes well up with tears of thankfulness, that is a sign that you have received this free grace and your heart has been changed by it. It's been changed by it. This is the grace of God, undeserved, unearned favor. We deserve wrath, but we receive love just like those people, uh, and it is a free gift. One thing about grace, though, is that it is free to us, but it costs Jesus his life. It cost God the Father, his son, free to us, but very costly. Although grace costs us nothing, it changes everything. All right, this is one true thing about grace that we have to know. Although grace does cost us nothing, it does change everything. Although grace is invisible, grace has explosive power. The early church that encountered this grace was changed. They were different than they were before, and they were different from the culture that was around them. I have to ask the question, are we that way? One of my favorite movies is uh, the movie Les Mis. I'm not even going to try to say the whole name because I can't pronounce the (laughs) French stuff. Um, One of my favorite movies, I love the book. I've seen the play twice on Broadway. I listen to the soundtrack somewhat regularly. And if you've ever heard the story, uh, you know that this idea, the explosive power of grace, is what this message of Les Mis and Jean Valjean's life is all about. And so I'll tell you what happens uh, real quick. This is a powerful example of how explosive the idea of grace can be, this invisible idea. So Jean Valjean, he was a man who, uh, in his younger years, uh, stole a handful of bread you know the the lyrics, for his starving children uh, because uh, they were down on their luck. He was arrested, and his arrest uh, arrest and trial eventually led to 19 years uh, of hard labor in a labor camp. And during this time, he lost all of his youthful innocence and kindness and gentleness. He was made into a hardened criminal over these years, almost turns into animal-like during this just brutal years and years of work and labor. Eventually, upon his release, uh, the deck of life was stacked against him. Nothing would go his way. He had papers that said he was a criminal and he could not find a job uh, no matter how hard he tried. Uh, One night, he is in a town uh, sleeping in the cold outside and a priest 
a kind, old, uh, fragile priest comes and takes him in and gives him a, a hot meal and a bed to sleep in for the night. Uh, but Jean Valjean, at this point in his life, the hardened criminal that he was, uh, over the meal notices uh, the one thing uh, that this priest had not given away to the poor. Uh, the one thing the priest had kept for himself because he wanted to serve his guests a nice meal was some silver uh, tableware and some silver candlesticks. And Jean Valjean noticed this, and in the middle of the night he wakes up and steals the silver and runs away, leaves. But as he is scrambling to grab the silver, the priest wakes up and uh, goes out and confronts him as he's stealing, stealing the silver and running away. And Jean Valjean takes the silver, hits this old frail priest who had served him over the head and runs away. A couple of days later, the police find a homeless man with a bunch of silver, and they're like, hey, something's wrong here. So they go, and they bring this man back to the priest. It's a small town. They know whose it is. They take this Jean Valjean back to the priest. They put Jean Valjean in front of the priest, and they say, hey, this man has what we believe is your lost silver. Is this the man? Did this man steal this from you? There's no way he has this on, the, on his own. And Jean Valjean, sure, he's going to be put back in prison, puts his head down, and ready to go back to more years of hard labor. <laughs> But the priest looks at him and turns to the police. He says, thank you for bringing him back. Jean Valjean, I'm so glad they brought you back because actually you forgot the last part of the gift. And he goes over to his closet and gets his last two pieces of silver and gives them to Jean Valjean. And then Jean Valjean can't, receives it, mind blown that he is not going back to prison. But this priest, in a gracious, free gift, he could have put him in prison and he was just to do so, but extended him grace and sent him on to a new life of fullness, right? Jean Valjean at the beginning is torn up. He's embarrassed at himself and destroyed, but he turns a corner and says, this second chance I have been given, this life I've been given, this grace I've been given, I must know, get, now go and pretty much pay it forward. And he has a changed life because of this encounter of grace. If you know the story, the rest of the way it goes. He cares for the downtrodden, the outcast, those who are burdened and no one else is looking out for because he had an encounter of powerful, explosive grace. Grace has explosive power. How much more should the change in us be shown than the grace in Jean Valjean? Right? He avoided hard labor for a few more years, but the grace of Jesus Christ gives us, we avoid eternal a separa separation from God in hell. How much more powerful should, be, should it be in our lives? He received a second chance, which he could prove, prove his worth. He had to prove his worth. He could still go back to jail. We are given full acceptance by God, and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account in a way that we can never blow or mistake or give up. The grace that we have received in the gospel is so much greater than what he received. And that grace that is so much greater should explode in our lives in powerful ways just the same. You cannot encounter grace and not be changed. Grace has explosive power. If you encounter the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you will be changed. There's no way around it. There is that change that happens by the grace of God in your life. And this grace, this explosion and change is what makes God's invisible grace, this idea, that our change in our lives is what makes it visible, right? When we change in a response to the grace that God gives us, we are putting on display for the watching world a picture of God's grace. When an individual encounters grace, they make grace visible. When you encounter grace, you will make God's grace visible. When a bunch of grace-changed people come together, we call that the church, and grace is made visible in even more powerful ways, right? When an individual is encountered and changed by grace, 
It's powerful. But when a group of grace-changed people come and display that, it paints a picture that the world doesn't have an idea for. Right? Look at this passage. It's just, it's ridiculous. They're selling stuff and giving it away. They're selling their assets and giving it away so that their brothers and sisters in Christ can be taken care of. Nobody can explain it except the grace of God exploding in people's lives. How, though, how does grace change people? Right? How does grace be made visible in our lives? What does this grace made visible look like? And in this passage, we're going to see those two ways. Grace is made visible in this church, and it can be made visible in us today through unity and generosity. All right, unity and generosity. We'll start with unity. Look at uh, verse 32 with me. The whole number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. We would say that they're on the same page. This unity for this group of people in the book of Acts is pretty surprising, uniquely surprising if you know the, uh, the situation. Uh, for early, from earlier in the book, we know that these early Christians were actually people who had come back to visit Jerusalem for a holiday when this Christian movement started, and they're from all over the world and they speak many different languages. So the fact that they are so unified just after a few weeks of meeting one another, uh, being able to sell possessions to care for one another, is a surprising amount of unity in a short amount of time. Second, from this passage, we know that these people come from different economic classes, right? There are some wealthy people and there are some people that are living off of, of charity from others. There are some people who have lands and houses and fields to sell and give for the good of others, and there's others who need it to receive and to survive who are needy. One interesting note about this idea of unity is scholars point out that this uh, quote of one in heart and soul is actually a classical Greek expression of ideal friendship. And Aristotle actually taught that this ideal friendship could only be accomplished by people in the same socioeconomic class. He said because of the differences in socioeconomic classes, you can't have ideal friendship period, because of the unhealthy dependencies that are created. It cannot be created across socioeconomic classes. So what we see here is Luke actually taking a jab at the thought of culture of the day of what true friendship and unity looks like. He says the message of the gospel of grace actually gets to do for you what your culture wants to do but can't, right? There is a gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ that creates unity even across socioeconomic racial divides that just unity in the culture cannot provide. Luke here is taking a jab at Aristotle, Plato, and all the greatest Greek thinkers of the day and is saying, in Jesus Christ, this true unity and friendship that you are looking for, that is where this can be found. The believers, though they came from very different backgrounds, values, cultures, were of one heart and mind because they all experienced this powerful grace. Grace is the only building block for true unity because grace both flattens and grace builds up. All right, Grace is the only building block for true unity because grace both flattens and builds up. Grace flattens because it implies need, right? You only need grace if Romans 3.23 is true, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To accept grace is to be flattened because we admit that we need a free gift that we can't provide for ourselves, right? Grace flattens. It brings down the boastful. But grace, uh, and this statement is that uh, we are so sinful that the Son of God had to die for you. Right? You are so sinful that the Son of God had to die for you. This is flattening. It brings everyone down. But grace also builds up. It implies not just need, but it also implies worth. You are so sinful, yes, that the Son of God had to die for you, but Jesus is so gracious that he was glad to die for you. Right? The 
Grace implies need and flattens, but it also implies worth, a gift giver, and it builds up. Grace destroys boasting and provides the way to true unity. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace kills boasting. Right there, it is so key. Because of grace, there is no boasting. And where there is a realization that there is nothing to boast about, because the ground is level at the foot of the cross, true unity can be had. Egos can be healed and freed. On the individual level, an encounter with grace will create humility. On a corporate level, a bunch of grace-changed people made humble will be unified. They will be together. The worldly weak, low, poor, and unimpressive will be built up and given value. The worldly strong, the wealthy, the popular, and the influential will be humbled and shown their need. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Oftentimes, uh, many of us fit into one of those two categories, either the worldly weak or the worldly strong. And what is great about living out life in the church is that the weak and the strong are both challenged. Right? In the world, the strong give, give, give to the weak, and the weak receive and depend. But in the church, what we learn is that everyone is equal. The worldly weak must learn to contribute and give, and the worldly strong must learn to receive and depend relationally from others. The way that this works out in our church is through our missional communities. It's through meeting together every other week for community group and encouraging one another, breaking up into gender-specific D groups to challenge one another. All of us are going to come from different backgrounds, some of us from great neediness, and some of us have always gotten on, have been on the winning basketball team. Some of us have always gotten into the best colleges and, had, and have had the best jobs. We need the worldly strong to learn how to receive and become needy, and we need the worldly weak to learn how to contribute and to give. And only in the gospel of grace can we do that. So if you want to learn what this community looks like, join an MC. Get involved, get connected, ask somebody how you can get connected into the true life of the church in relationship with others where you can learn to give and to receive. You see, Christian unity can be described like a tuning fork. Tuning fork. It's an instrument. I don't even know if they still use them today or if it's like an old school thing. But it it looks like a little two-pronged fork, kind of like this. And uh, it emits a sound, a tone, a note. Uh, And the way a symphony tunes... Uh, well, what they don't do is one person gets a note, turns to their neighbor, pass the note, they get tuned. The next person, pass the note, they get tuned. Because little discrepancies from person to person will create a massive difference after you do an 80-person symphony. So what they do is they have a tuning fork that emits a tone, and they put this tone up, and every person in the symphony uh, tunes to that note. That way, even if there's small discrepancies, the discrepancies are just off that note in ways that our ears probably won't be able to pick up unless we're some kind of musical genius uh, of some sort. Um, but the, the way that this works is in the same way, that's how it works for the church, right? We as Christians don't tune to one another and find little discrepancies along the way and grow to big disunity. Each one of us tunes to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there we find unity like a symphony, all of us tuning to Jesus Christ together. This group of people, they tuned to this gospel of grace that the apostles were preaching that Jesus Christ gave himself for in turn, they were tuned to one another. Unity is a secondary quality in the Christian life. It flows from a primary encounter of grace, being tuned to Jesus Christ, and is a natural overflow of that. Unity in the church, it makes grace visible. It glorifies Jesus. 
someone on the outside of the church looking in should say something like this. I don't know what I think about Jesus yet, but these people definitely believe he actually died and rose for them because there is no other way to explain this humility and unity in this group of people. Right? We hope to be a church where that can be said of people on the outside looking in. I'm not sure what I think about Jesus yet, but I know of this people. They really believe that he died and rose from the dead and paid for their sins because it's the only thing that explains this kind of unity and humility in their lives. How can we show off this grace through our unity to the world today? How can we make this visible? One challenging conclusion that comes from this idea of Christian unity is this. If you are out of tune with someone in the church, it is primarily because you are out of tune with Christ. Right? If you're out of tune with someone in the church, it is primarily because you are out of tune with Christ. We should not first be asking, how has this person sinned against me? Although they may have, and we can deal with that. We must first ask, how, what, have, what sin have I brought to this situation? How am I out of tune with Christ? Where is their ego and pride driving this? Where am I forgetting that grace flattens me and grace elevates their worth? And how can I be tuned to Christ and his grace and then be tuned to another? Right, the eight heart attitudes that we uh, walk through in foundation, some initial discipleship material that we go through, mention a couple of different things. Putting others' interests above our own is one of the key heart attitudes of a, followers of Je- of a follower of Jesus. Clearing up relationships is a key uh, heart attitude of a follower of Jesus. And one thing that I want to give to you, if you want to fight for unity in the church, especially with people that you might feel naturally out of tune with, where it's hard relationships, is talk about Jesus together. It's the thing that unifies you. Share your testimonies with one another. Hear how Jesus has been working in life. Don't look for other secondary things. Eventually get there, but don't start by looking for other secondary interests of common interest. Go straight to the source, the the deepest truth, the tuning fork, the gospel of grace, the message of Jesus Christ. Talk about that, how that has changed your life, and see if unity comes from that. This is the first way that the church makes grace visible is through its unity, its surprising unity toward the world. The second way that the church makes grace visible is generosity. And generosity. And this was an interesting one coming to this passage because we just got done a three-week series called Three Rich Guys in the Bible where we talked about a lot of generosity. And we told you in a lot of the uh, introductions to those sermons that money is talked about more than anything else in the Bible. And this is just evidence of that because we got done with that. We keep going through Acts and run into another passage on money and generosity. And this is a way that the church makes the invisible idea of grace visible through its generosity. Look at all the different expressions of generosity in this passage. Uh, Verse 32, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had a very loose grip on their stuff, right? No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Verse 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. They had a loose grip on stuff in verse 32. And then in verses 34 and 35, that loose grip on stuff allowed them to have a tight grip on people. Right? They let go of their things, not counting it as their own, so that they could start caring for people with the things that God had stored them with. Stored, Stored them with, yeah. Verse 32, they had a loose grip on stuff. Verse 34 and 5, they had a tight grip on people. This is a response to the explosive grace that they had, had experienced. And we see a great example, a specific example of someone named Barnabas. Uh, at the end of this uh, passage, verse 36 and 37, Joseph, he's called Barnabas by the apostles. Pretty cool to get a nickname from the apostles. Uh, son of encouragement. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field that belonged to him, brought the proceeds, and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
It's a quick aside, just introduce you to this guy, uh, Barnabas. He's not one of the more famous Christians in the New Testament, maybe, but he does make a powerful uh, presence in the book of Acts. I mean, he does some awesome stuff. Just a couple of things that he does here. His, his life is a great example of a grace-changed life in so many ways. Uh, here, generosity. I'll just give a couple more. In Acts 9, uh, Saul, who was an intense and violent persecutor of the church, killing, imprisoning Christians, uh, in Acts 9, he becomes a Christian, and then he goes back to Jerusalem after a little while, and everybody's afraid of him. And you know the one who goes and vouches for him before the apostles? It's Barnabas. Because Barnabas gets the power of grace. Right? He gets that somebody, even a murderer of Christians, he was in this crowd that put Jesus on the cross. He gets that somebody could be changed like Saul. And he vouches for him to the apostles. Right? Barnabas is an incredible example of a grace-changed life. Also, Acts 11. The gospel is spreading outside of the Jewish community for the first time to the Gentile nations around and Barnabas is actually the one who's on the front lines, and he goes and teaches these new Gentile Christians what it means to follow Jesus. Right? He sees that unity, because of grace, is deeper than anything that cultural barriers could divide. Barnabas understood that grace unified Gentiles and Jews under the same incredible Savior. He sold his field, showing generosity. He vouched for uh, Saul, showing this understanding of how powerful grace was. And he uh, went to the Gentiles to teach them how to follow Jesus because he understood how unifying, even across races, the message of the gospel could be. These early Christians, Barnabas being a great example, had a very different relationship to money than the cultures they came out of and even the cultures the Christian movement was embedded in. Uh, for example, in the 4th century, there's an uh, emperor, Emperor Julian said, Julian said this of the Christians. Atheism, which is his word for the Christian faith because it was so misunderstood, uh, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there's not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Right? Emperor Julian, the emperor of the entire Roman, uh, the vast empire, is saying this group of who he calls atheists, these Christians, are caring for the poor and the destitute and for one another among them so well that the emperor is aware of what's going on and is baffled by it, is confused by it, and is even slightly offended by it in some ways, it seems like, in this passage. So why did this, these Christians have this baffling relationship with money? Why is it so surprising and ra- raising up even to the point of the emperor, saying, how are these Christians doing this? And that's because grace, free gift, undeserved favor, unmerited favor, another way to say the grace of God, you can very tightly tie in the generosity of God. Right? These Christians were generous because God was generous to them by bestowing grace on them. God has richly blessed us in Christ. In Christ, we have moved from dead and sin to alive in righteousness. We have moved from hopeless with no future to having a guarantee of an eternal inheritance waiting for us. We have moved from orphans, stranded and alone to sons and daughters of the king. We have moved from poor spiritually to having riches laid up for us in heaven. Jesus became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. God was generous to us. God is generous to us. God was generous to the church in Acts. He was generous to the church in the fourth century around Julian. And he is generous to us today. But God is not only generous to us, he also makes promises to care for us. Just a couple of them. Matthew six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Do you trust that? 
Do you believe that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of these things will be added to you? The things that you need to survive day to day. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that God will be good on his promise, then you can give money away without fear. Luke 12, 32 and 33, fear not, little flock, Jesus tells his disciples. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Do you trust God's promises? Because if so, you can be generous. You can be very generous if you trust God's promises. Christians have a radically different relationship with money because they have had an encounter of grace with God. Christians in Acts, 4th century, today, we have a radically different relationship with money than the surrounding culture. And then the question that hits close to home, is that true of you? Right? Is that true of your money? You may ask at this point, uh, this passage tells me that I should sell lands and fields and everything I have and give to the poor. You want me to sell my 401k and all of my assets and give it away? Uh, my answer, not going to be comforting either way, is going to be I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what God is going to be calling you to do. And this passage doesn't teach a solution. This passage, as some people have mentioned, does not teach communism. It does not teach socialism. It does not even teach like church communal living. Every one of these believers, as they were impacted by grace, freely chose to give for the needs of those around them. We see that very clearly in the passage that Josh will be teaching from next week. Ananias and Sapphira bring a gift to the apostles, keep half back, and they are punished for their sin. The reason that they are punished is not that they should have given everything to the church, and that was the requirement for entry. The reason that they were punished is for lying. In fact, the apostles even say, it was yours. You could have done with it what you wanted but now you'll be punished for lying to the Holy Spirit, right? This is not a compulsion thing. This is not something I'm going to tell you what you have to do. All this is saying is a picture of the church that had a radical encounter of grace and overflowed doing silly things with their money, right? And that is what we walk in today. This passage teaches that when we have an encounter with grace, we'll have a baffling relationship with our money. It's going to surprise people around us. Just like uh, revenue and profit is called the bottom line in a business, money really is the bottom line in our hearts. Look where your money is going, and there you're going to find your God. Money is the bottom line. Tim Keller says it like this, you will always give effortlessly to that which is your God. Right? You will always give effortlessly to that which is your God. Where does your money go? Where, is it, where does it not just go, but where is it effortless to put your money? Where do you throw it away for fun? Right? Maybe it's pleasure, vacations, entertainment, ease of life. Maybe money goes there effortlessly. Future security, 401k, college savings for kids, uh, emergency funds. Right? Does it go effortlessly there? Maybe it's status, cars, houses, clothes. Follow the money. The gods in your life are going to be revealed when you follow the money. It is the bottom line. What are the gods in your life looking just at money? All right, what are the gods in your life looking just at money? What are the gods in our church? What are the gods in our culture if we look at where the money goes? Right? Or, as we've had an encounter with God's grace, do we treat our money in a baffling, surprising way? Do we give it to kingdom-advancing causes, caring for the poor and needing and needy, helping our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in a tight spot. Where does our money go? You will always give effortlessly to that which is your God. Someone on the outside looking into our church, looking into our missional communities, looking into our lives, I hope that they would say something like this about us. I don't know what I think about Jesus yet, but 
these people really believe he died and rose again for them, for their sins. There is no other explanation for the way they relate to their money. There is no other explanation for their generosity. Without this uncomfortable generosity, the Christian movement lacks power, right? Because God's grace remains invisible. Generosity is one of these ways that the church makes grace visible. Without generosity, the church is hypocritical, without integrity, proclaiming grace on one side and not living it out on the other. The church, in the beginning of Acts, this one described in Acts 4 here, had an extremely potent encounter with God's grace. Then they turned and made that grace visible to the world through their surprising unity in the midst of all the differences and their baffling relationship with money and their generosity. Today, we have a couple of options leaving here. I'll go two of them. First, in response to this challenging picture of this early Christian church, the first way we can respond is with guilt. All right? And guilt probably gets you to write a check after the service and put it in the bucket. It might get you to have one conversation with somebody who's difficult for you to love. Uh, but eventually that will wear off, and the balloon that's smacked up every Sunday will come back down again. You get smacked up next Sunday. Your science projects, seltzer water power is going to overflow. Right? On your own strength, you can go be unified and generous so you don't have to feel bad about yourself and you can feel pretty good that you tried to do the Christian thing this week. You can, you can operate out of guilt. Or we can do what the Bible calls us to as we hear the word of God preached. We can worship. Right? We can worship. We can look at the Jesus who made this Acts 4 church possible. Rather than looking at the Acts 4 church, measuring up and feeling guilty, we can look at the Jesus who made this Acts 4 church possible. We can look to Jesus, the one who is more generous than we could ever hope to be, even if we were the most generous person that we knew. We can look to Jesus, who was humble, put others' interests before his own, and was a unifier. He brought people together, even when we won't be able to do that perfectly as our buttons get pushed and people frustrate us. We can look to Jesus even though we fall short of what we hope to be, look to him for grace and find life. Then in grace, a true encounter with grace, as we've seen how we have fallen short, as we have seen how we have backbitten and torn others down and caused disunity, as we have seen how we've hoarded for ourselves, we can go and we can find grace that Jesus supplies for us. If you are a seasoned follower of Jesus, or if you are somebody who has never followed Jesus before, or anywhere in between, it's going to look really similar. They're going to look really similar to worship. First, we confess our sin. Right? We admit the ways that we have rejected God and we have chosen pride, arrogance, selfishness, and self-centeredness, causing disunity and tearing others down. We admit the way that we have been fearful to give money or stingy seeking to serve other gods with our money. We confess our sin. That's the first place we go. And we know 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sin in safety because Jesus promises to forgive it. After we confess our sin, we repent, right? We don't just confess it and acknowledge it and admit it. We start there, but we continue on. We repent. We ask God to change our heart. We say, God, in light of this grace, I confess my sin to you and I want to be unifying. I want to be generous. I want to embody this grace that you get. I want to make grace visible to the world around me. I don't want to keep it invisible. Ask him to make you a unity builder. Ask him to help you be generous. And then last, if you confess and repent, then we worship. 
We don't despair as we see all the ways that we fall short, although we always will. We look to Christ who gave his life for us. We look to Christ who was a unifier and he was generous on our behalf and gives that perfect righteousness to us so that when we stand before God, we can have confidence that we're accepted before him and welcomed into his family, taken care of for all of eternity. If you are a believer today, walking through this process is what it means to continue walking in repentance, what we're all called to do. And if you are not a follower of Jesus today, this is a free gift of grace that at any moment you can receive. There's no magical words to say. It's a posture of the heart of trusting in Christ and what he's done for us. But we worship. We are not motivated by guilt, but by worship. Leaving today, I hope that we will look to the grace of God. Right? Both unity and generosity, secondary. Seeing God's grace and being changed is primary, and these things will come. I pray that our church will put on display the invisible grace that God has given to us in Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that although we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ for those of us who are followers of Jesus. I pray for those of us who are not followers of Jesus that you would open eyes, that you would give repentance and faith today, and that many would worship you. I pray for Charlottesville. I pray for our uh, church that we would embody grace, and in a similar way that the gospel and belief exploded throughout Jerusalem, as we've seen in the book of Acts, that your gospel would explode here in Charlottesville as we strive to make grace visible in response to the grace that you have shown us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.